The text today will be Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This has been the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna. Um, before we get into the passage today, we're going to pray together. Um, we have a slide for prayer, I think, don't we, Alex? As you've maybe noticed in the service, we're trying to include hearing from the Lord, from his word, from different passages, singing to the Lord, singing about the Lord, and, during the, uh, and also praying to him in our response to his word. And we're going to pray today for our big three. Every Sunday we try to pray outward, inward, and upward. So today we're praying for Justin Mikowski. Is that how you say his name, guys? I don't know. I just call him Justin. Um, he is a youth pastor at Dearborn Christian Fellowship and a great blessing to our teenagers here, but not ours only, of other congregations. So we're going to pray for him and that youth ministry to the teens in Dearborn. Um, also for our medical professionals that are part of our church. As they go, the church is gathered on Sunday and it's scattered throughout the week. So um, how many of you are medical professionals throughout the week? I think I know we have three, four, five. So we have five medical professionals, and I want to focus also on praying for them as they minister to people physically and as the Lord opens up their mouth an opportunity to spiritually minister through that physical ministry. And lastly, we're going to pray for our president, um, Joe Biden, today. All right? So before we get into the word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your church, that you have established it, and you've redeemed her by your blood, and you have brought her together. And as we express our prayer for other churches that are faithfully making disciples of Jesus today, we want to pray for Pastor Justin at Dearborn Christian Fellowship, that as he leads the teenagers to put their eyes on Christ, that you would bless his marriage and bless his family. Encourage him, Lord. Give him strength for this great work. Um, help him as he 
needs your wisdom in situations that happen in the teens and youth and to determine what spiritual battles they are facing and to um, encourage them. We pray also for Hanin from our church that ministers also within that youth group and for the teenagers that are, that are here that are part of the youth group as well. Father, we thank you for them. We pray that your word would be so deep in their hearts through this ministry. So for that, we pray today for Justin. Lord, we pray also for the medical professionals, the nurses, um, the therapists, and the doctors that are part of our church. Lord, we pray that as they scatter from Monday to Friday or Saturday, that you would um, give them wisdom because of the work that you've done and uh, and healing our bodies, Lord, that you would give them skill in their trade. As they minister physically to people, Lord, I pray that you would continue to open up doors of opportunity for them to pray for people and to minister the gospel to people. We thank you that this week, um, Dr. Smingy shared with me how he was able to pray and how that prayer for a, a patient is effectual is that other people in his office can see the grace of God through him. And in, a, and in a place where there's often a lot of doubt in the existence of God, that you would use them um, even in their offices and among their colleagues. And we thank you that they're part of our church and that we can lift them up in prayer. Lord, we, lastly, we want to pray for our authorities and the powers that you have put in place according to your sovereign will. We pray for our president and his wife. We pray that you would Give him wisdom as he leads our country. Um, we pray that you would, uh, as you have ordained in the past, kings of Babylon and Israel both, that you would lead him to um, do according to your will. We pray that you would also grant repentance in places where our leaders have led contrary to the values that you have given us, the values of life, and we pray that you would um, lead our country back to you through the preaching of your word in our churches. So we thank you today as we prepare to hear from your word in the Gospel of Mark, um, that you would point our eyes toward Christ, that you would teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and that you would grow us into Christ-likeness together. And we thank you for the great and stupendous honor that we have to be called your children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, back to Mark chapter 3. Um, oh, before we go to Mark chapter 3, all of the kids, nursery age, are dismissed, and also Isaac's going to be teaching the 10 years old and below, correct? Is that right? Close enough? They, you know who you are, right? You know who you are. So if you go back with Isaac. All right. Go ahead, yeah. Hi, Oma. Yeah, we should welcome um, Isaac's mom. I know them as Oma and Grandpa, and they told us we can all call them that. Is that okay? And if anybody wants to go hunting, we're going hunting on their property in November, Noah and I, so you're welcome. All right. Matt, Noah, and I are going. I saw that hand. All right. Matthew chapter 3. Um, verses 7 through 19 is our text today. Hannah read it. Mark. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19 is our text today. 
Um, we're preaching through the life of Jesus as written by Mark, as he recorded it, as told to him by the Apostle Peter. He's writing during the time of Nero, under a great persecution, and he is informing the Christians of the life and teaching, death and resurrection, and commission of Jesus Christ. As we come to our passage today, we come to a dramatic shift in the action. It's as if we were going down a hill and picking up speed, and all of a sudden we've come to a cliff, and Mark does a sharp turn. So Jesus has come out of the wilderness temptations and his baptism in the wilderness by John the Baptist, and he's preaching publicly, he's healing, and he's doing casting out demons. And his ministry is picking up speed quite fast, and we come to a point of decision. The leaders in chapter 3 and verse 16, where, where is it here, in verse 6, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders, and the political leaders of Israel determine that this has gone on long enough. We've watched enough of the life of Jesus, and he must be destroyed. The crowd, however, has reached a fever pitch of interest in Jesus because of his healings. And they've come to him from all over. Um, here in verse 13 and 14, it mentions, I'm sorry, 7 and 8, the first part, it mentions all the places that they've come from. So you see, Galilee, which is where Jesus is at during the first part of his ministry, but also Judea, which is south of Galilee. That's kind of the two parts of the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, and also the cities of Jerusalem and Endumia, which is an ancient city into present-day Jordan. Also in uh, Tyre and Sidon, which are in Lebanon, just north of Israel. So people are coming from, and on the other side of Jordan, so they're coming from now over 100 miles away by foot, to come and see this healing and to be healed, and the crowds are getting unmanageable. So on one part, you have people seeking to kill Christ, have determined he must die, all the while his popularity is growing. So our passage today is going to be divided into two parts, and it has to do with that picking up speed of the crowds as they come to hear Jesus and that dramatic turn as Jesus separates himself from the crowd and he focuses in on the intense discipling of the 12. So maybe this first period of his open ministry lasted for a few months, maybe up to six months, but now the bulk of his life ministry is going to be investing in the 12 with brief public appearances. So we're coming to a great shift, and this is the part that we as disciples of Christ learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So we're going to divide our sermon into two parts. The first is the crushing crowd by the sea, and the second is the calling of the few on the mountain. And since Baptist preachers and I was, have been a Baptist my whole life, we have three points I will add. Discipleship under the new covenant, which is what we'll focus on on the third. So the first section, verses 7 through 12, if you'll look at it with me, um, Jesus and his ministry now for two chapters have been public, and in a matter of these weeks, maybe months, this energy is gathering. So I want to ask you all a question real quick. How do you feel about your personal space? Are you someone who loves to hug 
and sit close like Joe. Or maybe you're more like Kent and you like your bubble to be well protected. Yeah. Different cultures have different ways of expressing closeness. Um, there's actually a science behind this called proxemics. Proxemics is the study of how we use space when we communicate. Sociologists have determined that there are four basic spaces. There's first the public distance, which is where I am from you right now. If I get much closer to David Michael, he's going to start feeling uncomfortable because I'm speaking to a group, and then if I'm getting close to him, he wouldn't like that. We also have social distance, which is that distance that you have with colleagues and um, new acquaintances, that you're comfortable at a social distance. And then there's the personal distance, and that's the distance that you get with a close friend, where you put a hand on a shoulder or uh, arm around the shoulder, or maybe even you lock arms. If you're a Moroccan man, they'll hold hands as they walk down the street together. That's personal distance. And then you have, finally, intimate distance, and that's the distance that you are with your children or with your spouse. I kind of think of that as who would you feel comfortable watching a whole movie with their hand on your leg? How many people do you have like that in your life? Now, I can hug Joe, but I imagine if I put my hand on his leg throughout a two-hour movie, he might start thinking, you're invading my intimate distance space, right? Now, there are differences of how we express that space in cultures, but typically everybody has that type of space across Cultures. Well, what happens in this passage is that Jesus' public speaking space has been completely collapsed, and now all of these people are trying to get in his intimate space. Because they know, and this, the stories are traveling. If you remember just last two weeks ago now, we had Proverbs last week. Two weeks ago, he healed a man. How did he heal him? Anybody remember? Do you remember what he said? What's that? Yeah, well, that was three sermons ago. There was another guy in the last sermon where he said, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched out his hand. Presumably, Jesus touches him, but in other occasions, he does touch people. Even on one occasion, a woman touches him, and she's healed without even his cognizant, being cognizant of that or of him intentionally doing it. So people have heard these stories, and they know if we can just get close to him, if we can touch him, then we can be healed. And so the crowds, look what it says here in verse 7. It says, there was a great crowd that followed. This is the word polyplethora, or a great many. This is the, the, the Greek words were, is repeated here. And then in verse 8, it says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. It's the same exact phrase. And then again in verse 9, it says that they rushed to him, the crowd, again, this is a different word for crowd, it says that they rushed to him and they, he asked for a boat because they were about to crush him. So he had healed so many that the disease, that of the disease that the news was spreading and he was, there was a great, a great crowd or a crushing crowd was all around him. So think about how much love this is. We hate people invading our private space. I left Kroger yesterday and from behind me, a man called out and was asking for, um, for, he had a sign that he was homeless and he wanted, he was asking people as they left Kroger for money. And I just, what do you do when that happens? I mean, you instinctively 
put distance between yourself and that person. It's just a natural human reaction. But Jesus had not only the um, ability to provide for all of those needs and sicknesses, but he also had the love for those people to come close to them. So think with me today of the love of God that he would come, the word of God made flesh, being absolutely surrounded by crowds of smelly, possessed farmers, fishermen, and general crazies. People who were totally unaware of who he was, but just wanted his healing. And he was so much crushed by them. He, in all of his beauty and order, humbled himself, making himself close to our chaos. I told you the first point is the crushing crowd by the sea. You have to pay attention where Jesus is. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciples at the threat of, just of, of murder by the Pharisees. And where did he go? To the sea. So the sea represents that place of the wilderness where Jesus reaffirms his sonship. If you remember the story of the, of the Israelites, how they were taken out of Egypt to the wilderness, and it was there that they reaffirm their community and their sonship with God and also his obedience to the Father. But it was also a place of chaos. The sea in history and in history, historic literature is a place that represents chaos. And in this situation, as you see in verse 11 and 12, it was a place of great demonic activity. Look what it says here. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I have a couple questions about that. First of all, why was there so many demons? Secondly, why would they say out loud he's the son of God? And maybe thirdly, why did Jesus tell them to stop? Those are the the questions that come to my mind. I'll give you a couple thoughts to think on as I tried to understand why there was so much demon, demonic activity going on is that this was a land that was cursed because of the idol worship of the past generations and it had not been completely redeemed since the time of the Babylonian and Assyrian um, occupation. And there was not the salt and light that we have enjoyed for a few hundred years in this country as God's word is faithfully preached from churches. This was a place of great spiritual conflict. Besides that, you have the Son of God who came from heaven. And as he came, he stirs up by his very presence some of this unseen demonic activity that may be going around us that we don't see because of the very presence of God. It's sort of like if you were to drop a rock in the water and it just all of a sudden gets chaotic and all of a sudden gets, you know, creating these waves and now there's this response on the side of the spiritual there that we seem, that we don't see all the time with our eyes. But then they were saying, Jesus, we know who you are, the Son of God. So there's this idea in spiritual activity that to be able to name a person or to name a quality about that person is to be able to control. And in a reality, Jesus had been on his times table, on the timetable of the Father, he had been making himself known. Here the demons were trying to pull him out of the timing of the Father. This was similar to the temptation in the wilderness when 
when Satan himself tempted Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from this temple, God has said the, he will give his angels charge over you. Well, Jesus' life would be put in danger, and it would be the father who raises him up from death, but it wasn't at that time. So the temptations of Satan are also often to go outside of God's timing, outside of the Father's timing. We could, we could speak a lot about that, but we have too much to get to, but they were trying to out him, basically, to a crowd who did not realize to who he was on a timetable that was not his own. They were trying to take control of the situation by doing that. So Jesus, authority meets authority in verse 12, and he strictly orders them not to make him known. And they are silent. That's the wonderful thing about the authority of Christ, is that there is no authority on this earth, whether in principalities or powers, whether kings or demons, that is, has more authority than our Savior. He orders them, be quiet, and they're quiet. Reminds me of a few friends of mine from South America came and served with us in North Africa. They were arrested at one point because they were giving a Bible to somebody and this guy had called the police. Police took them to the police station and they, they were held for about 24 hours and they were asking them this question, by what, who sent you here? And who gave you the authority to be doing this? And uh, my, my friend Cesar, who is now a pastor in Peru, he, op he had them open, he couldn't, his Arabic was very poor, but he was like, could you read this verse? And he had them read Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and preach all, and teach all nations, baptizing them. So they read it out loud, and as they're reading it, there's these old typewriters that they're pounding away, you know, looking at the Bible verse, pounding their answer. They're pounding out Matthew 28, 19, and 20 in the police records about the interview. Because they're saying, there's no authority here above that of Christ, and he sent us, and we're sent, so we're doing it. And that's the answer. And that Jesus said, be silent. Authority meets authority, and they're silent. You notice that the faith of the demons did nothing to save them. You can believe in the very essence of who Jesus is and not know him. In James 2, I think some of you are doing Bible study through James on Saturdays, yeah? James 2, James said, you believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So this reminds us that just understanding who Jesus is is not, and, and acknowledging his identity does not mean that you're on his side and that he is yours and you are, you are his. So this is what... A, this is what really impacts me about the foolishness of evil. Here are these demons thinking that they may be able to overcome Jesus in this chaotic situation. Now, if you step back and you look at the history of God and his work in the world, you can see that's so foolish to think that evil could possibly triumph over God. But the foolishness of evil, and we should pay attention to this because we have a tendency in our fallen nature toward evil. Evil rises up against good, not realizing that it cannot win. And the foolishness is because God allows in his sovereign will for evil to continue, for sin to continue for a season. And he is long-suffering. But he warns us in Romans chapter 1 to not be so foolish to think that God's long-suffering means that judgment is not coming. But, we get on, but evil gets under this illusion that because he is allowing it space for a time, 
that it may somehow in the end be victorious. And no sin of ours and no evil outside of us will be victorious against Christ. It's just the, don't be deceived during evil's day that it's winning. Christians even sometimes get confused when they see the evil around us that maybe it's winning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. So this is the end of this chaotic scene with the crowds pressing on him by the sea. I think the thing to learn from this is the glory of the incarnation, that you and I are part of that pressing, crushing crowd. It should shock us. It should fill us with constant praise that God came, made himself in the form of a servant, and he spent time with us, and he was here with us. Have you ever been in a place where you were overwhelmed by the size of the crowd and by the closeness of the crowd around you? Um, just last week in Yemen, 78 people were killed by a crushing crowd. Um, I, I remember a trip I took one time, and in one trip we were visiting a missionary in China and a missionary in Egypt. So we flew all around the world to get to China, and we had these layovers in Paris, and we got out and saw the city of Paris, and then we got out and saw the city of Beijing at a layover there, and we had a labor over in Moscow coming back, and we got out and we saw the city of Moscow, and then flew to Cairo, which is a city of 20 million people, and surrounded by the green mosques that are, that are in Cairo, and the, the call to prayer going out, and, and going from communism to, to Islam to Catholic countries, all in one, it was about a period of 10 days, I was on serious culture overload an overload of the crowds and the enormity of the population of our, of our world. It was a similar sort of experience that caused one man, William Borden, who his dad sent him on a, he was a rich young man, went on a trip all around the world as a gift for his graduation from high school before he was to go into college on a, on a boat. And he was so impressed by the crowds of humanity in the world that he gave up all the fortune that he had in the Borden Milk Company and said, I give my life to serve Christ among the, among the masses. Have you ever been in that situation where you were just so overwhelmed by the people, by the need? Uh, you can get overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed by the need of a crowd this size. And I know most people think this is a small church, but the amount of need of each human soul in this church can be overwhelming. My own human spiritual need can be overwhelming. So what do we do when we are overwhelmed with the need of the pressing crowds of this world? This is what Jesus did in verses 13 through 19. We started with the crushing crowd by the sea. Now we're going to move to the called 12 on the mountain. Let's look here at verse 13. And he went up to the mountain... This was his response to the crushing crowd and all of the chaos of the demon activity. And he called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. It says that he appointed 12 as the first part of verse 14. I want to skip to the 16 here. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, I'm not sure, Hannah said that better than I did, Bo Bonerges or something. 
that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So Jesus leaves the sea and he goes to the mountain. Why? The sea in the wilderness is a place of chaos. It's a place of the crowds. It's a place of demonic activity. He goes up to the mountain. Jesus leaves that place of chaos and he escapes upward on an unnamed mountain. The mountain is a locus of revelation and redemptive action. We find its similarity in the old covenant on Mount Sinai, where among all of the crowds of the Israel, Israeli, or the, we say the Hebrew children, God calls Moses to come up on the mountain. And there on that mountain, he is going to give him a revelation. He is going to speak to him. And he's going to speak to him a word that is for the people. Look what Jesus did. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he calls to him 12 and he's going to speak to them a word that is for the people. And so what, why did Jesus choose 12? The number is very specific. It represents a creation of a new people. One that would, would be like the 12 tribes of Israel would be represented now by these 12 Hebrew men. And he is creating a new people, and he calls those who he desires. And this is the word I want you to focus on in chapter 3. He went up to him, in verse 13, and he called to him. He called to him. Now, if you have a pen or pencil and you underline stuff, just underline that little phrase, if you will, called to him. One of the one of the first things you learn when you're learning a foreign language is this word for come. You hear mothers say it all the time to their children. I remember learning it in Spanish, ven, ven, ven. Or in Morocco, they say eji, eji. I think in Jordan, they say eti or something like that. Maybe Arabic up the, the modern standard Arabic. In German, it's very similar to ours, come, come. Really sweet language, isn't it? Come. But this word is a, is a beautiful word. Come. Come to him. He calls people, 12, to him, to himself. It is drawing them close. It is intimacy. And it is those who he wants. Some struggle with this idea to know, you know, struggling between Calvinism and Arminianism. Are we called or did we come freely according to his will or according to our own will? Well, the easiest way to think about it, and I'm not going to try to solve that right now, but I will say the easiest thing is to look back and say, did you hear his voice when you heard him and did you come? If you came, when you read his word and you hear Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. So of, of the crowd, he calls 12 that they would come to him and he creates for himself a community. These 12 are going to be the prototype of the church. And, and it starts with intimacy with Christ. That's where the church starts. And he continues that way for up to three years in that close relationship. And the believers in Rome, why did they need to hear these names of these 12? Because all of the church and all of our faith rests on the testimony of those 12. We have what we call an apostolic faith, meaning a faith that is based on the testimony of the apostles. 
Jesus himself never wrote a word. He never wrote down a single word. He gave it all to those 12 men for them to preach. And for the first three decades of the church, there was no written word. It was all on the testimony of these 12 apostles. So when they heard this name, Peter, that Mark is saying, and he called to himself Peter, they know Peter. He's been there to Rome. He possibly was even in Rome when Mark wrote this letter. And John, who was the brother of James, John had been in Rome and was possibly also in Rome at this time, and they knew these names. Um, we could go through each one of them, but as we go through the Gospel of John or Mark, we're going to see different ones of the apostles saying things here and there. We're going to learn more about them. But the, the idea is that Jesus appointed and he chose and he called these 12, and our faith is based entirely on the testimony of those 12. Now, I want to ask Alex to put up a word here. about the, the, There are four tests when you're talking about eyewitnesses to know if your faith is standing on a firm foundation. We sang this song, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is made for your faith in his excellent word. So how firm is our foundation? There are four tests that you could use to determine the authenticity of the testimony of these apostles. So I'm just going to run through them real quick. If you want to write them down and, and look into them later, you can. But the first is the test of unity. Simon had been a Hebrew nationalist. Simon the Zealot, you see his name here in verse 18. A zealot was a Hebrew nationalist who wanted through violence to throw off Rome. Matthew, who's mentioned in verse 17, or I'm, yeah, verse 17, 18. Matthew, who's mentioned in verse 18, was, a, was Levi that we'd already read about, who was a Rome tax collector, a Hebrew working together with Rome. And those are just two of the examples. But the first thing you're going to do, and I've seen, I've seen a few cop shows, okay? The first thing you do when a crime happens is you separate the eyewitnesses and you get their stories to see if there's any contradiction, Right? And then you keep asking them over and over and over and over again, and you grow them under lights and pressure until you, they break and you see, is there any contradiction in the unity of the story? Well, the apostles, for their whole lives, through the pressure of persecution and through the different backgrounds that they were in, held a complete 100% unity about who Jesus was, what he did, and what he taught. There is absolutely no variation to their testimony. Secondly is the testimony of universality. That is, these men were Jewish men, but was this an ethnic message that was for an ethnicity? These were Jewish men, yet they were pushing out of their ethnic and tribal agenda. They extended his message geographically. Some of these apostles we learn later went as far as India. Many of them eventually died in Greece and in Turkey as martyrs and in Rome and far away as Spain. So the universality of this message is, is this a message that is just for one ethnicity? It's not. It's for all of time. There's also the test of the supernatural, and we're going to read about that. Um, Jesus appointed the 12, and he, gave, and he gave them two jobs, that they would preach and that they would cast out demons and heal. These were what we call sign gifts. They were the gifts that God gave to his apostles so that when he did something totally new, you think of Moses, 
right, in Egypt. How did the people know that Moses was sent from God? And Moses asked that question, and God said, you see the rod in your hand. And every time he did a miracle in Egypt, the confidence of the people grew that God was doing a new thing to deliver us. And this was a sign that God was giving them. And the supernatural always accompanies a new work that God is doing. So during the new covenant, the supernatural work of, you know, Peter, he could heal, and Paul and others, they could do certain miracles that were confirmed among many eyewitnesses because God was doing something new, and Jesus gave them the supernatural power to come together or to be a sign for the fact that their words were also God's words. The last test is the test of character. These men died, all but one, as martyrs, history tells us, meaning not a one of them, from Peter to Simon the Zealot, died as rich men who had gathered political armies. The three things that men in our corruption seek after would be power, money, and women. These men had, according to both secular and religious documentation, had a complete purity in their character and their preaching of the gospel. Not a one of them sought political position. Not a one of them became rich. And not a one of them used their power to abuse women. So there was the test of character. These four tests about these 12 men who were still alive at the writing of the Gospel of Mark was forming for the new church a firm foundation as these apostles took the place of the prophets of the Old Testament. So what can we say about this? Why does the church, what does the church exist for? What does it mean to you? I've heard different responses when asking this question. A, a church is a support system. Well, it is a support system. A church is a community of people. Yeah, it is a community. It's a classroom where we learn. Well, we do learn. We should learn. But above all, and what makes it all of those things, is a church is a family of disciples of Jesus. Meaning that a church no longer exists as a church when the church does not have the singularity of focus of obedience to Christ. You know, he called 12 to himself. Where were those 12 facing? Each one of them were facing Christ. And that created among them a community. That is to say that we are not a community who gets around and stares at each other and beholds one another though we do love to get to know one another, we are a community that comes together and beholds Christ together. As we look to him and obey him, he called the 12, and what was their response in the passage? What's it say in verse 13? He called to him, and they came. They came to him. So the application in the, for you and me is that discipleship under the new covenant, requires complete obedience to Jesus. They did not come as 12 to kind of do a brainstorming session to see what would be best for Galilee and their social problems during that time. They didn't come together to, you know, psychologically analyze one another to try to understand their human condition. They didn't come together so that maybe through the compilation of their intelligence, they might create something amazing. If you were trying to do that, you definitely wouldn't get this group of 12 together. They were not the experts at anything. 
which is exactly why Jesus chose them, because they were a community who was called and responding in obedience to Jesus. That's what the church is. That's what each individual in the church needs to answer. Have I been called by Christ, and am I obeying him today? As we move forward together as a church, we must move forward in obedience to the Savior. And that is what will make us united. It is what will make us his called out assembly of people. The last point here, we're going to go back to verse 14 and 15, and we're going to have a lot to say about this in the weeks to come. As we understand, the third point is the creation of disciples. We saw the crushing crowd by the sea and also the calling of the 12 on the mountain. But look here about the creation of disciples. In verse 14, it says he appointed 12. And in verse 16, it says it again, he appointed 12. And the word for this, appointed, is the simple word for make. It probably would have been a more literal translation to say, and he made 12, but that would probably confuse us as we read it because we don't usually use that word when we talk about making. We, we would think he like, created them at that moment. But this word appointed, it means that he made 12. It's a very common word that means to do or to make. Um, Arabic is amen. In Spanish, hacer. Any other languages? Anyway, it's, I use those because it's like a very, the, one of the first verbs you learn in any language is that word to do or to make. So as he called them, the first thing was they responded. But then what his work with them was, was to create in them disciples. He made them to be disciples. Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, to Simon, you are Peter. He gave him a new name, and he said, and on this rock I will build my church. He said to James and John, you are the sons of thunder. He gave them a new name when he first met them. But then he started this three-year-long process where he began to make out of them the reality that he had called them to. I'll give you an example. When Noah was born, we called him Noah because the Bible says that Noah walked with God. And we thought, we want our son to walk with God. So we named him Noah. But here's the reality. Jillian and I, though he came through a miracle of God because of us, have, we have no power to create a reality out of having named him that name. We can pray, we can teach, we can do everything we can to support that idea in his life, getting him in a church, listening to the Bible, talking to him. We can do everything we can, but we have no control, absolutely, of what, if he'll walk with God or not. And if you've been around for very long, you'll meet kids who had parents who walked with God who have no use at all for God. Now, we pray for that. We, we beg God for that, but we have no power. Jesus, when he calls us to be his disciples, he also begins in us that process of supernaturally making us into who he's already declared us to be. And he has the power. The same power that created the world is the power in working in you and I. In Philippians, Paul said that it is he who began a good work in you who will also complete it. 
So if he called you at, by, as his child, he called you beautiful, he can make you beautiful. And he will. He's called you strong. He can make you strong. And he will. He's called you wise. And in the process of discipling, he makes you wise. We are, as disciples of Jesus who've responded to his call, we are on in his system to be created according to the image of Jesus. If you remember a few months ago in our foundation series, I said that the definition of a disciple of Christ is someone who is being transformed into the image of Jesus. But it's someone who has to respond to the call. We're going to talk more about this at a later time, but I, there are four, in verse 14 and 15, there's three pieces of that call, and I'm just going to talk about the first one today, and we'll be done. It says in verse 14, he, he made 12 so that they might be with him. That's the first thing. He called 12 that they would be with him. Secondly, that he would send them out to preach, and thirdly, that they would cast out demons, and heal many. Depending on what your translations say, some translations add that they were given the power to heal. Some do not, based on the little text variants that's in the original manuscripts, but it's, the reality is it's both there. The apostles healed and cast out demons. They were given the power by Jesus to do that. He called them, or he made them into his disciples through those three processes. He called them to be with him, to send them to preach, and to cast out demons. Now, the first one is what I want to conclude today on. The process of presence is what we'll call that. That he called 12 to be with him. How, much, how many hours do you think Jesus spent with those 12 men for the next three years? Do you have any guesses? Anybody throw out a guess? I did some math and have a, a guess, but maybe... Real quick, give me a feedback. Just throw out a number. 18,000? Luke says 1,000? I heard somebody say that. Matt, it was Matt speaking behind Luke. 7,000, okay. According to my calculations, somewhere around three years, minus sleeping, maybe minus some of those times Jesus wandered off to pray to the Father, he spent 10,000 hours with his disciples. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, says that the amount of time for anybody to learn anything at an expert level is 10,000 hours. I, always, I love when scientists find something that we see God has already told us. It typically takes seven years. That's why you might find that to become a doctor, you have what you call residency, and that's a very intense time. It takes a lot of hours because you want your doctor to be an expert, right? Typically takes seven years if you're working a 40-hour-a-week job, but Jesus did it in three. Your influence in someone's life, this is a, a, a uh, consequence, is often directly correlated to the amount of time you spend with them. The best disciples that we will have in a church tend to be the children of the people that are raising those children to know God because they're spending so many hours with them. That's why when we make disciples of Jesus in a church, there has to be one thing that those new disciples learn to do, which is spend time with Jesus. 
what did they gain from the time they spent with Jesus? There's some things. First of all, they became eyewitnesses of everything Jesus did those three years. Secondly, they were given insights and teaching that years later, as they continued to teach, they were given wisdom beyond what a fisherman would ever imagine having. And they were given uncommon boldness. In Acts 4, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And what did they recognize? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus has called us to discipleship. Meaning, first and foremost, he has called us to himself. The strength of your following of Jesus is going to be directly correlated to the amount of time that you spend in his presence. So what do we say of our modern society that leaves no margin and leaves no time for people to spend in his presence? Should we be surprised that we have a weakness of spiritual life? That we have a weakness in our families as we spend no time in the presence of Jesus? Because we're so busy with everything that we have to do, that we think we have to do, put on us by our society around us. He calls you to himself, and we learn to listen to his message deeply. We are given boldness beyond ourselves when we spend time with him. You cannot grow as a Christian on one sermon a week if you come here and you spend time in the presence of Christ for 45 minutes. You must be spending a lot of time in the presence of Jesus. You also cannot disciple someone and really help them grow. And this church will not make disciples if we think that we're going to get people who have believed on Jesus to come in here on Sundays and once a week spend two hours with us and grow in their walk with God. It's not gonna happen. The process of presence is Christ's first calling to us as disciples. The process of presence. He also gives a process of preaching and the process of service by which he makes us into his disciples, but we'll talk about that later. The important thing that I want to close with today is that if you are a parent raising children, raise them constantly in the presence of Jesus, in prayer, and in God's word. Raise them to read the word for, for themselves. Re raise them to see their parents in the presence of Jesus. If you're a believer today, you need to spend time in the presence of Christ. You say, I'm a new believer. The one way you will grow above any other way is to spend time in God's word, praying and listening to him speak through his word. You have to. It is vital. It is vital that you spend time in the presence of Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, he invites you into his presence. It's amazing that our Savior would invite us daily into his presence. And that he wants us there with all of our sin and all of our rebellion and all of our uh, lack, lack of wisdom, lack of everything. He calls us to himself. So do not worry about your ability to accomplish his work. Spend time with him and he will make of you disciple. So what about our church and disciple making will expand the gospel? First of all, trust the preachers of the good news, the apostles. 
Trust his word as delivered by the apostles. What a firm foundation we have. Secondly, you are preachers of the good news. If you have come when Jesus called, then you are for, first and foremost being made into his disciple. Let his daily presence with you be the source from which all your outward ministry flows. If you sense that you are getting drained by ministry, step back and spend time with Jesus. Tell your brothers and sisters, I need to spend more time with Jesus. I'm gonna take a break from the busyness for a while. And we should support one another in that. Lastly, make preachers of the good news. As you minister in word and deed, seek to make disciples deeply. Help those who are responding to the call of Christ in our community to go deeper and closer with Jesus. This is what it means to make disciples and to be a disciple of Jesus. We have much more to discover through the Gospel of Mark, but for now, let us be, sit in his presence for a moment, amazed that he would call us into his presence daily. Jesus, we thank you that you called 12 common, ordinary men, and you created bold, wise, preachers of the good news out of those 12 fishermen and tax collectors, sinners and publicans, that you made of them such a firm foundation on which your church stands. And Lord, that you invite us into your presence daily and through your word and as your spirit works in us. Lord, I pray that this church would first and foremost be a group of disciples of Jesus who spend time being conformed into your image by the presence that we would spend with you. I pray that disciples would be made here who learn how to enjoy and love the presence of Christ. I pray that people would, beyond anything else, would be pointed to the person of Jesus in our community and learn about how to walk with him in a relationship. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.